Second Corinthians chapter four. It is always a privilege to be able to open the word to you. And I thank uh, Pastor Cliff for allowing me to do that this morning. I've been so enthralled with this message this week. I pray that it is an encouragement to you. Second Corinthians four verses one through six. We are experiencing in this country unprecedented moral upheaval. And I don't use the word unprecedented lightly. You know, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of using alarmist language for the sake of rhetorical effect. It is easy to say that things have never been so bad and gather a group of paranoid conspiracy theorists around you and rail against the culture. Anyone can do that. It's easy, easy, easy to merely complain about the evil in our society. In fact, you can even get a really popular talk show about those kinds of things and sell lots of books just complaining about the bad things that are going on around us. But in a significant sense, we can say that the shifts in our American society are truly unprecedented. Prior to the Netherlands in 2000, no country has ever enshrined in its laws a formal redefinition of marriage to include same-sex partners. A few European countries have followed suit. We know that our own country followed suit last summer by uh, mandating that all states would recognize marriage between same-sex partners, totally redefining what marriage is, and signaling, I believe, a wholesale turn from the biblical vision of marriage and human sexuality. Recent attempts to obliterate any genuine distinction between man and woman that is currently happening now, we see it all around us, is something that few cultural surveyors saw coming, the effects of which we have only begun to feel. It is likely that Christians who stand for a biblical vision of human sexuality will soon face job loss, discrimination, and severe social ostracization. And uh, regardless of your political bent, we are currently faced with two presidential candidates whose character is riddled with a history of moral compromises and downright scandalous behavior. More than ever, it seems integrity is of no concern for those uh, who have been selected to oversee our nation. If righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people, as Proverbs 14.34 tells us, then Americans have little reason for hope uh, for exaltation and every reason to hide our faces, faces in shame. Many of us, many of us fear that this great experiment that began in 1776 is quickly coming to an end. And I say quickly because these massive moral changes are no longer occurring gradually. They are occurring at an exponential rate of increase, aren't they? And despite significant renewal of strong biblical reformed churches in America, something for which we should all be grateful, the willingness to abandon historic biblical doctrines for the sake of cultural conformity and comfort appears to be the default for so many churches. I find myself confounded almost daily as I read articles and books from professing evangelicals, pastors and scholars, cultural pundits and bloggers who are leveraging every sophisticated argument they can against clear biblical teaching in historic Christian doctrine. Plenty of churches are bowing down to the cultural expectations of a fallen humanity and then spinning their compromise 
as so-called relevance and, quote, being all things to all men. Pastors are daily falling into disqualifying sin, and there's a growing evangelical leadership subculture that is rife with self-promotion and pride. Quite frankly, there's every reason in the world to lose heart. There's every reason in the world to lose heart in the gospel message and its effectiveness. There's every reason to lose heart, but only if you look at the things that are seen and not the things that are unseen. Even though our present circumstances press themselves into our senses with the appearance that they are what are truly ultimate, the truth is that what we see is temporary and passing. It is the unseen spiritualities of the gospel which are truly ultimate, and that it will be this theme that we'll focus on for this message and next week's message. The unseen realities of the gospel. But my, go- my goal today is not to raise an alarm, as though you needed someone to tell you how bad things are. Honestly, I don't really care about sounding an alarm, and neither did Paul. My goal today is the same as Paul's goal in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. I want to strengthen your character. My goal is to root you in the truth of Christ so that you might say with Paul, we refuse to uh, practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. My goal by God's grace is to so fortify your character that you would rather die than compromise the truth of the gospel. But how do we do all that? Paul's solution to the question of perseverance in the midst of insurmountable obstacles is not to call himself or his readers or his listeners to muster up sheer willpower. Rather, he's going to ground us in vital theological truths about God. How do you persevere? You root yourself in the truth of who God is and what he does. So what we're going to look at first, we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at two theological foundations for ministry perseverance. And if you think I'm only talking to pastors, I'm not. Pastors are those who equip the saints for ministry. I'm talking to everyone in here. You have, as we'll find out, a new covenant ministry to fulfill. So we'll look at two theological foundations for ministry perseverance. And then next, we'll look at the character of ministry perseverance. So this is our first of two theological foundations for ministry perseverance in the face of rampant unbelief. Unbelief is rampant. We see it all around us expressed in a multitude of ways. How do we persevere in our ministry, much less our life? When all of these things are happening around us, the first foundation is this. The first foundation for uh, ministry perseverance is the sovereignty of God in giving us a new covenant ministry. Would you look for me in the very first sentence of chapter uh, 4, verse 1? Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart. The first reason why Paul did not lose heart when he looked out upon a world of unbelief was because it was God who had given him his ministry. This is clear from the very first verse. 
the ministry that Paul is referring to here is a new, the new covenant ministry that he had just described in verses 12 through 18 in verse, in chapter 3. Let's look at that briefly. The old covenant ministry had some glory. The old covenant had some glory. We, we see that when, when Moses was able to go and go before God and have actual face-to-face communion with God. We have an old covenant that provided for fellowship with God through a sacrificial system. God would actually reveal his very presence in a uh, actual locale, the temple, the tabernacle. It had some glory, but it was a temporary glory, a fading glory. And which is one of the reasons why Moses would hide his face because when he would come from the mountain and his face would shine with the glory of God, it would fade. And he didn't want people seeing that the glory was fading. But in the new covenant, the glory of Christ that shines before our face that every true believer can behold spiritually never fades. The text says that as we behold Jesus Christ, we are transformed into the same image from one glory to another for this Verse 18 comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Through the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, the good news of a gracious Savior, through faith we can behold that Savior. We can behold that new covenant glory and be transformed as we do that. It's this ministry that Paul refers to in chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry, namely a new covenant ministry. It's the ministry that Paul has become a partaker of in which uh, Paul has been entrusted by God. All of this, Paul's salvation and Paul's receiving of a new covenant ministry was brought to him by the mercy of God. Everyone in the world, uh, out of everyone in the world, Paul was the last candidate to be considered for salvation, wasn't he? He hated Christians and he oversaw their violent persecution. But God doesn't grant salvation to those who deserve it but precisely to those who don't paul was the recipient of mercy both of in his salvation and being entrusted with ministry the sovereign god of the universe just imagine this the sovereign god of the universe the god of abraham of isaac and jacob the god and father of the lord jesus christ had entrusted paul former persecutor of christians with a ministry And for this reason, he could say, we do not lose heart. But I want us to notice something vital here. Notice that Paul does not ground his hope and courage, his perseverance in the fruit of his ministry, but in the sovereignty of God in giving him a ministry. This is so important. And we'll see this importance even more clearly as we move through the text. But Paul does not ground his stability and his perseverance in the fruit of his ministry. He grounds it in a more sure footing of God's sovereignty, of uh, the sovereignty of God in giving him a ministry. If we look at the fruit of our ministry in our children, in our church, with our family members, with our business colleagues, there'll be some reason for encouragement. Well, we, we should see some fruit. God's word is effective and it, it will accomplish what it was set out to accomplish. And we should pray for success in our ministry. We should pray for fruit in our ministries. But if we build our perseverance and integrity up here, 
we will be tossed to and fro because there will be times when we can't see the effectiveness of God's word and we'll be tempted to tweak the message so that we can see more fruit. Some seeds, when they go into the soil, take a lot of time before they mature and grow into healthy plants and trees that bear fruit. But if we ground our perseverance in God's mercy, we'll be steady, we'll be steady and stable in the face of unbelief. So we can say with Paul, with the same amount of conviction, we do not lose heart. It is God who has entrusted to us a ministry. You may not be a pastor. You may not be a professional minister. It doesn't matter. God has entrusted you with a gospel ministry, ministry to your children, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your extended family on the street doing evangelism. It's God who has entrusted to you that new covenant ministry. A ministry of calling sinners to be reconciled to the God of the universe through the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. So that is the first footing and the foundation of our ministry perseverance. The sovereignty of God in giving us a ministry. We do not lose heart because God has given us a ministry by his very mercy. We do not lose heart. But there's a second foundation. And this is key, especially... As we live and minister in a world opposed to Christ in the gospel, the second ground of our ministry perseverance is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Notice that that is very specific. It's not just the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God in salvation. Notice what Paul does here. He first states that it's the mercy of God that grounds his, his uh, perseverance. He can not lose heart because God has given him this ministry. But he walks with integrity. Listen to these words. Listen to the resolve in these words. We refuse. We have renounced. What has he refused and renounced? We we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god paul walks in integrity and purity with regard to the word of god and the message of the gospel we'll come back to this more specifically at the towards the end as we talk about the character of ministry perseverance but we need to ask why at this point why such a fortified integrity paul where did you get this integrity Where did you get this resolve? I want that resolve. I want that sure integrity. Paul goes directly from talking about his unswerving integrity in verse 2 to talking about those who are blind to the gospel in verse 3. And if you're reading with any thoughtfulness at all, a question should arise. Where are you going with this, Paul? What's the connection? What's the connection between your resolve to not practice cunning or to tamper with God's word and man being blind to the gospel. What's the connection? Is Paul just kind of throwing things together willy-nilly? No, not at all. Paul is anticipating a question. He's anticipating a question. What question is he anticipating? Here it is. You can almost kind of hear it if, if you're paying attention to what we learned about the new covenant. Paul, if this new covenant ministry is so glorious... If Jesus is so beautiful, why or don't you think it is strange that when you preach it, 
There are some, even many, who reject it. Can you feel the weight of that question? Can you anticipate what would come after that question? Can you anticipate the proposal? It might sound a little like this. You might see less unbelief and you might see more fruit if you just tweak the message. If you just kind of manipulate people a little bit, you'll see more fruit. The problem of unbelief will go poof and you won't be burdened by it anymore. Now, it's usually not so blatant, is it? But there are scores of books and churches being written and churches being built on that very premise today. Paul anticipates his question and this suggested by turning immediately to the problem of unbelief. He's not going to passively let you question. He's going to actively anticipate. He's going to give you the answer. Here's the answer. Verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul had already discussed this problem of unbelief, specifically in verses uh, uh, 14 through 18, or 12 through 18, in chapter 3. Speaking of the Jews, Paul comments their minds were hardened for this day when they read the Old Covenant. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, even though they were exposed to the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews were still, by and large, unable to see the true significance of their scriptures, those scriptures and how they pointed to Christ and the forgiveness of sins in him. But turning to the Lord would remove that veil of unbelief. In chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul is going to take us a little deeper into the dynamics of unbelief by giving us a greater spiritual reason why there are people who reject this glorious gospel, this glorious new covenant message of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds have been blinded actively by Satan. Paul knows, he knows that people will think that there is a problem with the message if people are not responding to it. He knows that, he anticipates it. So the apostle explains that the problem lies not in the message of Christ, but in the blindness of the unbeliever. A blindness that is induced and controlled by Satan himself. The reason why people can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, obviously, is not because Christ is not glorious. Obviously, because the, mess- the message of the gospel is, is not good news. That's, it is wonderful news. Sometimes I am blown away by when I explain the gospel, the gospel free grace and forgiveness to the repentant sinner, how it so quickly it is rejected. It is a glorious message. It's not because the message in Christ are not glorious. It's because the eyes of the heart have been actively blinded. No one faults the Swiss Alps. When, when someone stands before that great mountain range and yawns and says, oh, I've seen better. No one faults the Swiss Alps. The deficiency lies in the person who can't recognize glory. The fault does not lie in Christ. It does not lie in the message of Jesus Christ. The deficiency is in the unbeliever. The only solution, 
to the problem of unbelief, therefore, is the sovereign work of God shining spiritual light into the heart of the person. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the Genesis creation narrative of God creating something out of nothing, physical light, in order to illustrate how God creates spiritual light in the heart. In both cases, Genesis and here, God has nothing to work with. In neither case does God cooperate with pre-existing matter. God must create a new reality out of nothing. When God shines the light of the gospel of Christ into the heart of the unbeliever, he gives sight that was not previously there. He creates life that was not previously there. He provides light that was not produced by the unbeliever. (coughs) God is fully sovereign over the salvation of the unbeliever, and he is the ultimate reason why some are able to see Jesus as glorious and why some others are not able to see Jesus as glorious. And make no mistake, all that troubles our country right now is simply the fruit of unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are certainly sociological and political and economic and historical reasons for why we are where we are today. Those, those are le- things are legitimate in and of themselves. But even these reasons are expressions of a more fundamental reality. Namely, that mankind is blinded by Satan to the beauty and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every man, woman, and child in this nation and in the world is in need of the same remedy. The mercy of a sovereign God shining the light into their spiritual darkness. If unbelievers can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, what makes you think that they're going to have an affection for any other aspect of the truth as it bears itself out? In public life, we can thank God for his gift of common grace, that he blesses unbelievers with the ability to make decisions and stand for legislation and ideas and policies that align with God's moral will and is and that are good for humanity. In fact, we've enjoyed a good amount of that common grace in this country for many, many years, and we can thank God for that. But the unbeliever's ability to make good decisions and to stand for legislation and policies, whether economic or ethical, that align with God's moral will, does not flow necessarily out of a heart that beholds the glory of Christ. It comes from education, upbringing, a well-informed conscience, and the reality that all people are created in the image of God and can recognize that there's a moral structure to the universe. But when the heart is fundamentally opposed to God and blinded to the glory of Jesus Christ, there is no guarantee that a person will stand for what is good and right because they cannot see or understand the very basis for what is good and right. We grieve over our nation. We grieve over our nation. But in light of what Paul has said, we are not surprised. We're not surprised. Notice again... That is, is the theological truth about God's sovereignty and salvation in which Paul roots the character of his ministry. Follow me working up from verse 6. Notice how this works. It says, For God, who has said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's giving a reason for what he just said. 
And what he has just talked about is the character of his ministry. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants, your servants for Jesus' sake, which is tied directly to verse 2 where he is described in even more detail what it means for him to not proclaim himself and to proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's grounded in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Paul had experienced firsthand the miracle of God shining spiritual light into his own darkness. And in verse 6, he gives the reason why he and his ministry companions proclaim Jesus as Lord and present themselves as servants for Jesus' sake. It was because God had shown the light of the gospel into their hearts and removed their darkness. Paul knows theologically and experientially that it is God alone that creates this miracle. And so he refuses to tweak the message or to put himself forward as a centerpiece of the message. Well, that brings us to our next consideration. We've looked at the, the foundations for ministry perseverance, the sovereignty of God in giving us our new covenant, covenant ministry, and then the sovereignty of God in salvation. Let's look at the character of this ministry perseverance. Let's look at the character of this ministry perseverance. This is now in verses 2 and 5. What does it look like to not lose heart? What does it look like? Paul's already stated emphatically that he does not lose heart because God had given him that ministry, that new covenant ministry. But what does it mean? Well, one thing we know it doesn't mean is it's not mere passive resignation to our circumstances. It's not mere passive resignation to our circumstances. That's not what it means to not lose heart. Stoicism. There may be some here today who find themselves, you're, you're a professing believer, you believe the scriptures, but you find yourself rather unbothered by the state of our nation. You are emotionally undaunted and unmoved by the massive moral shift that has occurred over the last two years in this country. You might blithely say, well, ah, yes, you know, uh, we are all evil, and uh, plus the Bible says that uh, uh, this is the way it's going to go, and all mankind are evil, and you know, it's just... That's just the way it is. And... But be careful that you're not mistaking emotional apathy for spiritual maturity. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136, he said, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The psalmist wept as he surveyed the cultural landscape and saw a wasteland of unbelief. He wept. Yet how many of us who believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God are weeping over the utter rebellion and unbelief around us? How many of us even feel burdened? Okay, let's say you don't actually shed tears. Do you feel burdened by it? Do you feel the burden of unbelief? The wholesale departure from biblical foundations? I suspect that there are few of us because it's just emotionally difficult to become engaged in these things. And it requires that we suffer a little bit. And it's uncomfortable to have the heart burdened with these kinds of things. It's painful to have the heart break over the unbelief and, unre- and rebellion of, of people around us. It takes an emotional toll on us to become genuinely concerned about the direction of our nation. So we just turn on Netflix and quote some verses about God's sovereignty and man's wickedness and and let it go. But let's be careful that we are not mistaking this kind of indifference for godliness. The psalmist wept. 
When Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, he does not mean that we are able to cast aside care about the way things are as if emotional indifference is something commendable. Rather, not losing heart means something specific. It means that there's an active resolve on our part to live with unswerving integrity in the face of what appears to be insurmountable unbelief. Notice that Paul contrasts not losing heart to something else. Notice his language. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning and to tamper with God's word. So part of what it means to not lose heart is to conduct oneself with unswerving integrity. That's the first mark of persevering ministry character, unswerving integrity. Specifically, it means to refuse to incorporate any kind of subtlety or dishonesty or craftiness or manipulation into your ministry. To reject any temptation to dilute the message of Jesus Christ or practice manipulative methods in the hope that you can solve the unbelief problem. You can't. You can't solve the unbelief problem. There's only one who can. And it's God. Remember, the issue for Paul is how Christians are to conduct themselves when people do not receive the message of Christ. What do you do when you're faced with insurmountable unbelief? The first temptation that can creep in is that you lose heart in the ministry. You lose heart. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is to start tinkering with the message of the gospel in order to make more palatable to people who don't Uh, So that you don't have to bear the burden of opposition or feeling like a fool. And don't think that you won't be tempted to tamper with God's word or tweak the message just because you're not a pastor. Every one of us will be faced with the temptation to soften the hard edges of the gospel so that we can somehow mitigate the unbelief that is rampant all around us. That will be our temptation, every one of us. People can't embrace the lordship of Christ on their own spiritual strength. But the temptation is to tweak the gospel a little bit so that they can embrace it on their own strength. But because Paul is rooted, remember where he started? Remember where he's rooted? This is not willpower here. He's rooted in truth. Because Paul is rooted in the theological truths of God's sovereignty over his ministry and God's sovereignty over salvation, he is able to renounce dishonesty and manipulative practices and give himself completely to proclaiming nothing but the undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that tells us that God exists, that he is holy, that we are by our very nature opposed to God and outside Christ offend God every moment. That there are just consequences for our hatred and opposition to God in an eternity of conscious torment. That the Son of God came down to earth as a man. That he bore the full penalty for those who would believe in him. That he rose again from the dead and that he offers eternal salvation to all who would come to him. And He that salvation would deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. He offers this to those who come to him in repentant faith and faith alone. 
That is the undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ. In the moment you start tinkering it, tinkering with it in order to solve the problem of unbelief, you are now treading into very dangerous waters. Rather than practicing cunning or manipulation or tampering with God's word, Paul and his companions proclaim the gospel in its fullness and present themselves not as the centerpiece of the message, but as evidence of the message effectiveness. The message is effectiveness. Let's see this here. There is reality to Paul's words. Notice what he says. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. His holy conduct serves as proof of the gospel. You can know that the gospel is true, Paul says, because I'm living proof of it. This character serves to convict the conscience of the truth of the gospel. Paul has nothing to hide. The gospel releases you from hiding anything. Paul has nothing to hide. He's walking in integrity. His ministry possesses the luster of irreproachable integrity, and he's able to commend his character before the Corinthians and before God. It's not pride to say that you've conducted yourself with integrity. Paul does, and he has. And if people are unable to behold the glory of Christ, it's not because of the message, and it should never be because of our character. People cannot behold the glory of Christ because they are spiritually blinded by the God of this world. So the character of true ministry perseverance is a commitment by grace, rooted in theological truth about God to unswerving integrity, unswerving integrity. Next, the character of true ministry perseverance is seen in a commitment to Christ-centered proclamation. Notice how Paul describes his ministry in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. If by God's grace we are able to see the glory of Christ in the gospel and we are rooted in the sovereignty of God over our ministry and the sovereignty of God over salvation, we will be able to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ without including any of ourselves in the message. Paul commends his character, but he only proclaims Jesus Christ. And when someone preaches themselves, be careful of this, it doesn't have to be with sheer me content. People are a lot more subtle and crafty than that. They don't just need to be talking about themselves. All they need to do is talk with unbiblical content and one's own ideas instead of the truth of God's word. Jesus said in John seven eighteen, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So if you speak about Jesus Christ without remaining true to the scripture, you are guilty of preaching yourself. Paul resolved to never do that. He proclaimed not himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He commended his character. He proclaimed only Christ. But how else do we see the character of ministry perseverance? And this is, this is my last point. The character of ministry perseverance is seen in a commitment to genuine servanthood. A commitment to genuine servanthood. We see this in the uh, last part of verse 5. Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. This is an important component to our ministry perseverance. Paul does not proclaim himself, 
in the message of the gospel. Rather, he gives himself as a servant to others for Jesus' sake. You know, there is a universe of difference between someone who proclaims himself to get glory from others and one who gives himself for the good of others. Paul was the latter. And I pray that all of us will be as well. That we see ourselves as servants to the world. Not merely as those who should be out winning debates, but servants with a precious gospel. And as we'll see next week, something in jars of clay, a treasure in jars of clay. We are servants for Christ's sake. Are you serving others with the gospel? Are you just trying to win the cultural debate? What are you doing? Are you a servant? Paul was. The power of God working through the gospel, opening our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, transforms us into people who are unswerving in our integrity, immovable in our conviction of the truth, and selfless servants to a dying world in a struggling church. Let's just get real practical here. What this nation needs, what the San Francisco Bay Area needs, what your neighborhood needs, what your school needs is not mere cultural engagement. What people need are 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, Christians. That's what people need. You know, this was brought home powerfully this week in an article by Carl Truman, who's a church history professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Just, I think he says it so well. He's kind of a, a voice out there uh, among others who, who don't th- see things as clearly. And he writes this. He says, the church, quote, the church needs to be the church. This is so good. I'll start over because it's so good. All right. The church needs to be the church and Christians need first and foremost to be Christians before they engage the civic sphere. Maybe our current problem is therefore not that society is secularizing, but rather the opposite, that the American church is finally being forced to de-secularize. This will be painful and it will involve hard choices. It will involve increasingly obvious differences between church and the world. It will not allow for compromise, but in the long run, these will be good things. What a word. So in line with the spirit of Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. So what our country, city, and community really need are Christians who are certain that God has given them a new covenant ministry to fulfill who are utterly unmovable, immovable in their conviction that it is God alone who opens the eyes of the blind. Christians who are unswerving in their commitment to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of the gospel. Christians who are unwilling to compromise their integrity, who are convinced that only the full, undiluted gospel of the glory of Christ can break through the darkness unbelief and who are willing to give themselves as servants to others for Christ's sake. That's what the world needs from the church. Not another book about cultural engagement. 
If it wasn't obvious before, it should be now. There are massive social and political forces now moving decidedly against the church and against the Christian faith. Unbelief is rampant and it is entrenched. But here's the good news. Nothing changes for us and our mission and our approach to unbelief. Nothing changes. God has given us a ministry and God alone saves and opens the eyes of the blind only through the gospel of the glorious Christ. And for these reasons, we do not lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make these truths real to all of us, that they would burrow deep down in our hearts and bear fruit. I pray that we would be Christians first and foremost, that you would so ground this church and so ground its elders in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of the sovereignty of God over every man, woman, and child, that we would be totally unwilling to give up the truth of the gospel, totally unwilling to manipulate, totally unwilling to tweak any part of this good news. God, would you strengthen this church? Would you strengthen every person here? And I pray if there are people here this morning who do not see Jesus in his glory through the gospel, that you would save them even today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.